You're listening to the Hybrid Cloud Podcast. Welcome to another Hybrid Cloud Podcast. And this week, I'm joined by Erin Brown from Infinidat. Hi, Erin. How are you? Hi, Chris. Thank you for having me. So why don't you just take a few seconds just to introduce yourself to everybody, and then we'll get into the discussion. Great. So Aaron Brown, I'm the EMEA CTO at Infinidat, um, an independent storage vendor that's been around in the market with the product since 2013 as a company since 2011. Uh, and before that, I'm a software engineer. I did a, a stint in networking. And for the last 14 years, I've been heavily focused on the data infrastructure, um, storage and everything that consumes it. Wonderful. I'm sorry to hear that you had to do something in networking. <laughs> <laughs> and networking is one area I, d I absolutely try to avoid where, where, wherever I possibly can. I can understand that. That's one <laughs> of the areas where all the phantom problems happen and disappear and everybody gets frustrated. Absolutely. Okay, so you are um, a company that makes what people would think of as a traditional on-premises storage appliance. But obviously, we're here talking about hybrid. And what we really want to talk about today is the idea of how people can use storage both on-premises and in the cloud, and what has to evolve in order to try and build something that looks consistent across those two platforms. So let's just start by talking about the challenges of using hybrid cloud storage and why they might be different to what people are traditionally used to in the enterprise. I think there is a misconception about what hybrid cloud means. Some people think, oh, I'm going to run the same application simultaneously on-premise and in the cloud, which is a very complicated thing to do and is probably aimed more for modern cloud-native applications where you could run some of it within your private cloud and some within the public cloud. For most people, hybrid cloud means something will, some things will run within my private cloud, some things will run within my public cloud. And of course, the perfect example is Salesforce, where everybody agrees that Salesforce is a great use of a SaaS model cloud. I doubt that we'll be seeing a lot of the run same app on two different clouds anytime soon, sorry, on private and public cloud anytime soon um, model. So with that, I think we have to understand that as you go into the cloud, the question is, what do you do? How do you perceive the role of each part of the hybrid cloud? What should stay on-premise? What should go to the cloud? And I think that's kind of the first question that is very often missed. We see, I've heard more than one CIO say, oh no, I'm taking everything to the cloud, period. That's my strategy. Well, that's not a strategy. That's a management decision. Absolutely. And even just from purely from the storage uh, aspect, things are very different. So, you know, if we think of what, what people might think of as anything from a mid-range to up to an enterprise storage appliance or an array, we're not, we're not necessarily getting exactly that sort of service when we're in the public cloud. We're getting something like, that looks very different to that sort of traditional prem stuff. True. I mean, you can run a virtualized version of an enterprise storage in the cloud. You can do that. It's usually very, very costly, and we don't see a lot of traction for that. Uh, I think what customers are looking for is as they transition to the cloud, if they rely heavily on things like uh, snapshot, backup mechanisms, etc., they need to find the functional equivalence within the cloud. So I think going into the cloud and expecting nothing to change is definitely the worst possible way to go in. But also uh, going into the cloud and just accepting that everything has to change is also the other end 
uh, of that spectrum, the other extreme. You have to revisit every assumption you had when you start working in a hybrid cloud. And a lot of it is about remembering what you're trying to achieve and not how you used to achieve it before. And just uh, to add one little bit to that, of course, pretty much every cloud implements what they do differently. So if you're in AWS and you want to use some sort of storage solution, and it doesn't have to be storage, of course, it could be you know lots of other things, but they're implemented differently, the parameters are different, the APIs are different, the security model might be different, uh, performance characteristics might be different, cost model might be different. You know, you, you're not looking at it going, oh yeah, because it's cloud, it must all be the same. It's actually very different, and, and even the offerings are different. True, and I think, um, for many customers, as they go into a cloud, they often say, all right, so I've chosen to go with Azure, for example, and they just adopt whatever Azure has to offer without asking a question. Well, every couple of years, one of the cloud providers comes out with a really disruptive technology. And my favorite example to use, by the way, is Google when they came out with AutoML. Now, at the time, Amazon clearly dominated the market. Microsoft wasn't in the good position it is right now. And many people who were in Amazon were actually very excited about AutoML because it was really ahead of the competition, but their data wasn't accessible to AutoML. They couldn't even play with it because that would mean egressing a lot of data. So when people go into the cloud, one of the things they don't really think about is what happens if I need to augment my current cloud with one of their competitors? What happens when I need to access my data from another cloud? And the term multi-cloud is rarely discussed and data gravity as a whole is rarely discussed. I don't like the term data gravity. Why is I'll that? You now, because I think it's data inertia. You know, um, I don't think data has gravity in the sense that it pulls things in one direction. I think moving data around and accessing it is, is an inertia question. Because once you get the data moving, if you move the data between clouds, you can actually move data quite consistently. But the inertia of getting it in and out is the hard part. And obviously, that's not necessarily gravity. But data gravity sounds like a nicer term than data inertia. I, I get where you're coming from. I would argue that there are misconceptions around what data gravity is. I think people tend to think of it as, oh, if I've put my data in AWS, I will only be using AWS. Well, first of all, you need a DR. So there's always a consideration of where is your source of data. So for example, if your cloud journey starts with DR as a service in the cloud, you already have a copy of that data on-premise. It is actually cheaper to replicate it from on-premise to two clouds, cloud providers to begin with than it is to egress it from one cloud provider to the other. But another thing, regardless of whether it's inertia or gravity, and I would say that because of the high cost of egress, uh, there is some gravity elements there. It's just, it's costly in time, effort, and money to move data between clouds. Uh, one of the things we've been preaching for a while now is just instead of battling with data gravity, the only way to avoid egress costs is to not put your data within the cloud provider to begin with. And that's why we have Nutrix Cloud, our cloud adjacent offering, which unlike everybody else who tried to do this with uh, all flash arrays, where, which were as expensive or even more expensive than the cloud providers, we're doing this with a very flash optimized array, allowing us to disrupt even the cloud's own pricing for tier one storage. So you can actually keep your data out of the cloud and consume compute and special pass capabilities or SaaS capability from the cloud. It's not an all in or all out option. There are middle grounds to be used. Okay, when we get to talk about MSPs, we'll come back to the Nutrix cloud side of things, because I think that's an interesting model that perhaps sometimes gets forgotten a little bit, but we'll come back to that. But let's 
really move on and talk about the idea of standardization because what we just talked about there that whole idea that clouds are different on-prem is different to the cloud you know one one aspect of this could be just simply to standardize and say i'll try and make everything look the same now as an example of this if i was in a traditional enterprise one of the things that we used to do quite a lot was we would try and wherever possible standardize the offerings from different vendors to look the same and some of the things we could do were quite straightforward we could make LUN sizes consistent we could use snapshots which you know are fairly consistent we would use say synchronous replication which was fairly consistent although they might have different APIs the actual underlying offering won't be the same but obviously we couldn't do everything and things like performance could be a challenge you know you would definitely have differences there so do we need to be trying to standardize the way that we consume storage between multiple clouds and on-premises to try and make it all look the same? So I think I would just change the word standardization with the word uh, abstraction. What you want to be able to do is just like you can take a VM that runs on an HP server and move it to a Dell server uh, because the hardware is abstracted, you want to have an abstraction layer that allows you to consume one backend service today, let's say it's Microsoft SQL on-premise, and then as you go to the cloud to be able to consume Microsoft SQL in the cloud. So today, for example, the database connection provides that layer of abstraction. But as you start consuming more sophisticated services with proper APIs, you need to have that same discussion again of abstraction. So not have your application, for example, directly talk to the API of that pass offering, but maybe have some sort of a piece of code that talks to the backend. So that code could be replaced with something, let's say today you're in Azure and you're talking to Microsoft SQL in Azure. Tomorrow, you want your application to also be able to leverage a GCP and GCP doesn't offer you Microsoft SQL or they offer something better. So you need to be able to swap the backend and just a small piece of code to make that abstraction work. Otherwise, if you talk directly to the APIs, you start getting these problems of how do I swap out a specific backend service or product when I need to. So it's all about abstracting the backend infrastructure and making it very pluggable. Oh, today I'm using database X, tomorrow I'm using database Y, and it's practically not affecting my application. Okay, and I think that's a fair point because you know, ultimately, standardization is, I guess, one way of um, describing what we've, we've just said, and really it is, to a certain degree, abstraction. But also you point out the fact that, you know, when we look at a storage function in the cloud, we're not necessarily thinking just about standard things like block devices and file and object. Uh, cloud has a lot more, let's call it, you know, more advanced storage features that could be things like databases or, ML, uh, you know, analytics functions and so on. So by standardizing or at least having an understanding of the API more, we're in a better position there, I think, is what you're saying. Definitely. And okay. the more your application is designed according to cloud-based practices, the more you can actually benefit from those. So, for example, if you're relying on a POSIX backend, it's very easy to transport it from one POSIX-compliant storage to another POSIX-compliant storage, but you're tightly coupled to POSIX with its benefits and disadvantages. If you write an abstraction layer that shows the application, the files without being tied to POSIX, and then you want to move from POSIX to object, that's a different discussion. Now you can actually swap out your backend POSIX or for something that might be fitting your scale needs or maybe providing some other functionality like machine learning on top of, your, of, of all of your files. Okay, let's move on and talk about pricing because this is a really interesting area, I think, where 
we've started to see vendors trying to change their their models of operation and they're doing it in multiple ways so let, let i'll pick a few examples so we're seeing for example um, vendors trying to move away from the uh, acquisition model into more say of a perpetual model where you you pay a subscription or you um, even almost uh, get the the hardware as a service but to be honest it's very different to deliver that in the cloud compared to the way it is delivered on premises because at the end of the day in the cloud that's a shared environment on premises it's dedicated to you so for, for vendors i think that's a tricky one to overcome so what, what do you see on the pricing side so first of all i think procurement models have become one of the factors of success and, and i cannot overstate this enough let me give my favorite example. If you're still procuring hardware for your data center the old traditional way, the way we did it in the 1970s, where somebody approves a project and then it takes you five months to get the equipment in to start the project, then at the same time, at the, in the cloud, it may be more expensive. Usually enterprises, and again, we only talk to enterprises, so I have a kind of large account bias, but enterprises are telling us that that's about 20% price premium for them. So they would love to do it on-premise, whether it's on CapEx because it's nicer financially or on OPEX because that's how they prefer to operate. But because the cloud is almost near instant deployment versus their private cloud, which is usually months, they end up taking some projects just for sheer time to market. They end up taking projects that shouldn't go to the cloud into the cloud. So if you're able to disrupt your own procurement process to get to the point where you still have somebody who's governing how much you're spending and on what, but deployment is instant as if you were in the public cloud, that would be the new gold standard for you. Now, how do you get there? So question number one is how do you disrupt your own procurement process? Question number two is, okay, now that I can do everything instantly, I still need the automation behind it. So the IT transformation. So there are two parts to that, kind of a pricing procurement one and a human one. We strongly believe that the reason most customers are not able to get that consumption model on-premise is one of two. Number one, many customers have a problem with, uh, with OPEX within their own data center. So when they go to the cloud, there's only the OPEX option. So you, you face reality and say, all right, if that's all I can get, that's, all I'll that's what I'll take. Absolutely. But when they go to their own private cloud, if they can get that agility through OPEX, some of them still have that mental block where, oh no, I don't want to spend operational budget on my own data center. I want to acquire assets. So can we still get CapEx-based models where you can still instantly grow and deploy new project? And that's been a challenge for most customers. Most of these offerings are not available today or they come in an insane premium. Well, to get that model, you need to do something first. You need to find a way for the vendor to make money, but still put a lot more, in our case, storage capacity on the floor of your data center that you haven't paid for. Because for growth to be instantaneous, you need to be able to give the same level of service for one terabyte growth, 20 terabyte growth, and 200 terabyte growth. So for the vendor to be able to say, yeah, sure, I'll give you 200 additional terabytes at no extra charge, and only and even only when you use them I'll charge you for them, the vendor needs to first be able to disrupt their own internal costs. And we believe that the whole discussion around all flash arrays and now NVMe-based arrays, which are even more expensive, is countering that effort. So by choosing to go only with all flash arrays, customers are actually preventing themselves from gaining agility. 
Whereas what we're doing right now with the flash optimized model allows us to actually put, a customer may only pay for 300 terabytes, we can put a petabyte on the floor and say, when you grow, you pay for that capacity. And if you don't grow, you don't have to commit to that. Naturally, if they're willing to commit to some future purchase, we can actually be more aggressive on pricing, but it's the instant, instant growth part that they want to get. They're already paying less to run things on-premise than they would in the cloud. It's great for them to be able to get that agility. So the consumption model starts with the procurement process. And if you cannot revolutionize your own procurement process, your private cloud will remain very slow. That's a really interesting um, way to look at it. So, you know, that difference between uh, highly expensive, but I guess potentially um, highly performing um, storage and what that people look at as in the old flash model and the way that you've had it now I'm not saying that your products aren't uh, highly performing by the way that's not what I was meaning by that what I was meaning was that when you look at an old flash system the sort of assumption is that because it's all flash it's there to deliver super high performance to every single application all the time whereas what you're putting in is a, a different design but it's still going to give you um, the, the level of performance you need otherwise you wouldn't be putting it in that environment in the first place but that different model allows you to be different with your ability to see those environments for your customers without having to go in and touch that or upgrade it or change it in a subsequent visit based on what their requirements are. Oh, definitely. We see customers who say, I would like to move away from owning assets. So customers who did revolutionize their own way of perceiving their private cloud. What I would like to have uh, is a private cloud that I can scale up, scale down. I don't want to own the hardware. I don't want to care about swapping out the hardware or extending service. I want this to be a true on-premise storage cloud. And we do that. We have a, an offering called Flex, which basically allows customers to avoid owning the hardware. They can scale up and down instantly, but they get the full capabilities in terms of performance, capacity, everything of the box on day one. And they grow into it exactly as they would in the public cloud, except now they don't have to go through the whole cloud transformation to do it. They get it instantly today with their own existing IT processes. Okay, but, okay sorry, Karen. Uh, the one thing I want to say, you said that all flash arrays are, are perceived as being able to deliver that high performance all the time. One of the points I always like to make is this. If you go to America and you say, I want a really fast car, somebody might say, all right, so buy this five liter engine, uh, Dodge or Ford or whatever. If you go to Germany and you say, I want a really fast car, they will say, here, there's a two-liter VW Passat, for example. But it has this great uh, TSI engine and this great DSG gear, and you'll get a fast performance, great performance. Well, when I go to America and they say five-liter engine, I immediately understand why it's fast. When they tell me about the two-liter TSI DSG thingy, my initial reaction is, yeah, I can understand why that would be fast, but can I still take it for a spin just to see that it is actually fast? Yeah. What I tell customers at that point of the discussion is take it for a spin. There's basically try and buy and POC option, et cetera. Just take it for a spin. And when they put us head to head with all flash arrays and see that we are outperforming them consistently and we're already cheaper and we're giving the flexible consumption model, that really makes the sale for us. For us, the number one effort, by the way, as a company is to get to a POC. That, that's when, from our perspective, the deal is practically done. It's all about getting the customer to come out of their comfort zone and say, yeah, I'll try this technology. But by the way, with the whole financial crisis we're all heading into right now, uh, I'm optimistic that more customers will be actively looking for ways to disrupt their own private cloud pricing. 
yeah, good point. Um, j- just as a side note on that idea of a very a super fast Sirocco or Passat or something like that, you know, with a two liter diesel engine. Um, I have actually been around a track at 150 miles an hour uh, with five, no, four of us in the car with a professional driver. This is not me driving or anything like that um, in a two litre um, car, diesel car like that. And you think, OK, this is going to be interesting because there's a lot of us, there's four of us in this car. Can it really do it? And yes, it could. And it was really interesting to be going around a track at that speed and seeing what those sort of cars can actually do. I think they still quite happily drive at 150 miles an hour. I'm sorry, I, we, we use the metric system. I'm doing the translation in my mind. Wow, that's a lot. It is uh, fast, yeah. So this is um, a test track called Millbrook, where they do a lot of the improving um, of the cars. Um, and they've got a, a, a bowl, I call it, which is slightly angled. So depending Ooh. on which speed you wanted to go at, so um, there's actually on the track is written the speed that you can go and take your hands off the steering wheel and the gravity of pulling of centrifugal force will pull you back in to the um, track so that you don't um, so that you uh, you don't need to steer it will sort of steer because gravity is pulling you back in against the centrifugal force if you've been, if you've been pushed out well I don't um, know what about you but if my driver at 150 miles per hour would have taken his hands off the wheel I'd be smacking you very hard well <laughs> first first of all it was a lady and she didn't take her hands off at 150 thankfully um, but she did at 100 just to prove the fact but uh, it was fascinating to see that you know that you were entirely right you can do that in a car like that so just going back, just thinking back for a second to what we talked about earlier, the idea of having um, storage in what we call cloud adjacent, how does that you know, affect the way people look at pricing? Because obviously you could deliver that in a different model. You don't necessarily have to give somebody a dedicated solution. You could give them you know, a, a fraction of an array or a fraction of a, a platform, and that might actually help your um, cost model slightly differently. Yeah. So... I'm now involved in a deal with a customer, for example, who has a little over one petabyte of NAS data, and they want to do DR in the cloud. They don't want to own the second uh, data center. And one of the things we're telling them is, all right, is is it DR, we just want to protect the data, is it the business continuity and you actually need to be able to resume operations? And they say, well, it's a DR on the short term. And then if it happens, we will, of course, bring up everything on the other side, but we have time. It's not urgent. These are engineering efforts. So it will delay the time to market of our next product. And we talked about it. And for them, not owning the second site is something they're definitely excited about. It's a hassle for them. They don't have anybody in that site. It's always travel for that. But the ability for them to consume the storage, but they have complete data sovereignty. So it's not within AWS. It's not within, uh, and I know data sovereignty and uh, data governance is a huge issue now with the American Cloud Act kind of disrupting the sovereignty of EU and UK uh, states. This is a huge issue. So for them to be able to say, yeah, I've taken the data out of my data center, I'm closing down my DR site, but I still have complete control over my data is a very, very strong statement. Now, when you think about the ways to achieve that, and we said enterprises are experiencing about a 20% price gap when they just lift and shift to the cloud, running an all flash array within your cloud instance is definitely one way of doing things to get rich data services like snapshots and replication, maybe sync replication, which is somewhat challenging in the public cloud, but you're now taking the 20% surcharge of the cloud, adding whatever licensing you have to pay to the storage vendor per terabyte or whatever the consumption model is, and you end up with a very, very expensive model. Our choice of doing it adjacent to the cloud, so basically we sit within the same Equinox data centers, uh, so the latency is very, very 
low, even when you incorporate the cost of the uh, express route or dial link or whatever you need to pay for, it's still dramatically cheaper. But again, it starts with our own price disruption out of the box. And that's what enables that business model. Okay. No, fair enough. Right. So let, let's move on and talk about how we, we might see this affect different aspects of the um, the business and different areas of the business. So um, I, I think I'd like to sort of cover SMB, maybe how MSPs are doing it, and then then get on to the enterprise, which is where we all tend to sort of end up eventually talking about enterprise. I think for me, the SMB one seems like to be the, uh, the most disruptive going forward, simply because a lot of SMBs might just look at it and say, I'm going to push all my resources to public cloud. I could use a public cloud environment for all my file data. And they may not have, as, for example, as much in terms of analytics or other sort of, you know, large volumes of unstructured data. And I can see SMBs being quite aggressive in their transformation of just moving completely off-premises altogether. And I couldn't be more behind that statement. So my parents own a mom and pop insurance services business. I'm pushing everything they have from the cloud, from the financial management of the business to their emails, everything. I don't want them to own anything that's on-premise because, of course, it's two computers in the business. There is no DR. Getting backups out is a nightmare. Uh, they don't have proper IT staff. I'm their IT staff, you know, connecting remotely <laughs> once in a while. So getting everything to the cloud is definitely the way to go for SMBs. By the way, Unlike enterprises who have economies of scale, SMBs are paying an arm and a leg to get IT services. Going to the cloud is actually a cost savings for them. Plus, the model where you pay a monthly or a yearly fee to use a product versus having to prepay for you know three years of using um, financial management software is a lot more comfortable for SMBs. So definitely, if you're an SMB, it's a no-brainer. Go to the cloud. Consider whether you want to go to something like a, a tier one cloud provider or maybe you want to go to a local MSP that may be able to also provide you some additional services if you need them, but go to the cloud one way or the other. And I think for those sort of businesses, they're not really going to have anything on-premises, but they may use multiple clouds. So they may put some stuff in, I don't know, for example, an Office 365, but they may use other functions for other, other parts of their business, other vendors, I should say. Yeah. So, of course, they could quite happily be using multiple public clouds, but just not having that hybrid uh, option, that hybrid multi-cloud option, because it just makes no sense to them. And again, for SMBs, consuming SaaS makes so much sense because you don't need to care about any of the underlying infrastructure, which really ties well into their operational needs, which is minimal hassle. Just let me consume the top tier, the application. I don't want to know or understand what's happening behind the scenes. That's great for SMBs. So I wonder whether there's a, there's a certain degree of the innovators dilemma here with the way that SMBs are in the sense that vendors might decide well we don't need to, to make products for the, the lower end of the market and they start to move higher up higher up and focus on you know more mid-range and enterprise but then there's a risk that the cloud just grabs more and more of that business and at some point instead of the cloud competing just on taking SMB business they're now competing on taking all of your business. So I would argue that a big part of what you're discussing has already happened because if you're not able to have your private cloud agile, and if you're not able to show a clear price gap between your on-premise and the cloud, why shouldn't your CIO or anybody else in the company's management say, you know what, I'm sick and tired of managing this. It's a hassle. I just want to pay a fixed monthly fee and 
get minimal number of surprises. However, for other customers who are able to dramatically disrupt their own cost, who are able to disrupt their own operational processes so that they can be, and the example I used to give is uh, if you have a new app that's supposed to be started and it's urgent, it's something for uh, an urgent need, COVID-19 of course comes to mind. Um, if you can do this on-premise for let's say 100,000 pounds and it will take five weeks, or you can do it in the cloud, it will be 130,000 pounds, but it will happen within two days. Well, for something that you want to get fast to market or something that's urgent, yeah, you're going to pay the extra 30,000 pounds. But let's say you can disrupt your own cost structure. So now your own private cloud is no longer 100,000, it's let's say 90,000. So you increase the gap by just 10. But then you can deploy on-premises, not within five weeks, but let's say five days. So now it's 40,000 pounds for the gap and it's three days so two to five days. That's the difference. Do you already sign up and go into the cloud or do you kind of stop and say, well, do I really need those extra three days? Is it worth $40,000 pounds? Mm. Sorry. So it's all about making the private clouds more agile, not necessarily as agile as the public cloud. That's a high standard that nobody can achieve. These companies specialize in automating their clouds. You just need to provide a more cost-effective equivalent. Okay, let, let's move on and talk about MSPs then, because this may be something that an, an area where an MSP could actually do exactly what you just said and offer something at a bit more of um, a, a bit more value or maybe even value-add services to, to to customers compared to what they could have done in the past. And they might be using both a combination of the cloud in the background, and they could be using a um, you know something like your technology on on their site, and they might do it that way. So maybe MSPs are in a very strong position here to be able to do value add for a lot of customers. Definitely. And that's why I said, first of all, for SMBs, consider a local MSP uh, to be adding some services, to not just run your application for you, but to also add some capabilities, whether it's support or whatever else you need. But our discussions with uh, MSPs over the last, I would say, year, year and a half have really changed. So they've understood the fact that now, you may be operating in a country where there is no tier one cloud provider yet, but yet is a very important word in that sentence. And they understand that when they do open their first tier one uh, cloud, they will have a new type of competition. So, and by the way, this is, if I take the UK example, you think about British Telecom, which used to be not the 800 pounds, but the 10,000 pounds gorilla in the market, and now they're going head to head with Amazon, which is even bigger. So companies will have to revisit who they're competing with and how, what's their differentiation strategies. And I think that bringing value-added services to customers is a great way to go. Bringing localization capabilities, having people on the ground in your territory that can actually provide either local language or even physical location presence is a great one. But I think for most companies, the transition to the cloud is very, very hard. And you're seeing the big cloud providers actually partnering with these MSPs, referring to them as CSPs in their language, to enable cloud transformation with services, with guidance, uh, managing some of their customers' cloud infrastructures. So number one is you bring extra value beyond the cloud, that knowledge base and the service around it. But if you only do that over a certain amount of years, your customers will become self-sufficient and you lose that business as well. So that's a short-term strategy. When we talk to MSPs, 
the one thing they want to see in their long-term strategy is how do I still maintain my customer relationship and my customer value over time? And that's again, what we look to partner around Nutrix. So again, we allow them not only to guide the customer to the cloud, but to allow the customer to not put their data in the cloud so that inertia slash gravity do not become a problem for them. And then two years down the road, the customer said, hey, I heard about this new um, image recognition service from Microsoft. Uh, my data is in AWS today, but I want to use that service. Can I do it? Yeah, now you can upsell another service. Well, your data is not in the cloud. It adjacent, it's, adja it's adjacent to the cloud. So we can actually load it into this machine uh, learning image recognition process and actually do a lot of analysis. Uh, so for example, maybe you have a lot of scanned forms and now you want to use uh, Azure's forms recognition to make some new value from that data. Well, if the MSP guides the customer towards the right cloud adoption path, that can definitely be a huge value for them, not just for the short term, but for the long term. And they're partnering with us around their ability to kind of take the Nutrix capabilities, which is a lot of uh, human years involved in development and running that for themselves. I, I think the MSPs might be in a position where they're actually possibly, first of all, not fully understood um, what, you know, what they could offer. And secondly, in a very strong position to be able to offer something more than they could have done previously, because now, if you look at uh, if you look at what it takes to, for example, understand the differences between all these different cloud platforms and how they interact and how they work with the in and the fact that there are new features and functionality coming out all the time, I think for a large um, organization or a small organization, keeping up with all of that knowledge is really tricky. So having somebody who's got the skills in that who can actually work across the different platforms and give you that level of advice as well as sell you services and, and other consultancy skills actually could be even more valuable than it was previously. So I just saw an analysis that somebody did about a cloud migration process. And when you look at like the Microsoft or AWS sites where they compare each other's services, it seems like, hey, they pretty much offer everything identical. They call it different names and they have different APIs, but what do I care? It's all about the price. Well, if you have an MSP guiding you, you can actually find a lot of cost savings uh, uh, policies. For example, migrating existing Microsoft licenses when you're going to Azure, as an example. Uh, or maybe some smarter use of pass in the backend in Google to be able to reduce your backend costs, etc. But that's knowledge that comes with experience. And that's where the MSPs can come in. So if you just read the tables, that the comparison tables between all the cloud providers, they seem pretty similar. The devil's in the details. Absolutely. Let's go on and then finish then as we look at enterprise, which we, um, I think you said at the very beginning, you know, the, the desire or the your um, um, propensity to talk, sort of head towards that large enterprise and uh, customer because that's where we, we tended to work a lot of the time. Uh, what do you think the enterprises will do in terms of the way that they will adopt the, the hybrid and the, um, the multi-cloud model? So a little thought experiment. Can you imagine Facebook running their own infrastructure on AWS? Of course not. They'll spend so much money on something that they have the proficiency to actually achieve by themselves. Great. Can you imagine my mom and pop shop running machine learning? No. So it's very clear that large customers, the super scalers, have to run their own thing and the smaller ones have to go into those consolidated clouds. Now there are two questions what should go to the public cloud in the hybrid model and what should stay on premises. For enterprises, they the right decisions, they will find that whatever they need to get faster to market, 
could be well served uh, on both of them if they're able, as I said, to disrupt their consumption model, their pricing, the way they consume the underlying infrastructure. Um, and again, this doesn't have to be OPEX, unlike what people think. People used to think that cloud is OPEX and on-premise is CapEx, and that's no longer the true for both sides. So if the, you're able to disrupt your own procurement model, your own processes, you can now ask the question strategically, not ad hoc, middle of the corridor discussion. Oh, can we go to the cloud? It's going to be 20,000 additional pounds, but if we can cut a week or a month or a year of the deployment time. But you can actually have a strategic discussion. Well, wait a second. This has GDPR compliant data in there, or this has some private health information, etc. Um, I'm not sure I feel comfortable placing that in the cloud yet. We don't yet have the proficiency to properly secure that. What if I prefer to keep it on premises for at least another year because my cloud journey is relatively young and I want to keep it there? So enterprises, it's not about what goes to the cloud. It's about what's the role of each one of the two clouds, public, private. And for the private cloud to really have a role, it has to disrupt itself. We have to make our private cloud a lot more agile and change the consumption models. If you do that, if you now have a true alternative where you can deploy new apps in both places, now you can have a strategic discussion. What's the demarcation line? And if you think about it, 80% of the apps can run either on-premise or in the public cloud. Some applications like data lakes and ML will run in the public cloud. Some things are fairly simple and will run on-premises. It's the middle tier that you have to worry about. And that's where most of your cost is. This is the Pareto 80% of the cost is there. So you have to disrupt your private cloud to be able to save on those 80%. Okay, and I think so. Just summing up where we got to through throughout this discussion, I think clearly what we're um, pretty much focusing on is the fact that yes, the technology isn't the the biggest discussion at this point here. The the, the biggest discussion is your operational model and how you disrupt your own operational model to be able to deliver these services within either the private or your public cloud environment. This isn't specifically just about technology. No, it's not about technology. It's what you get out of it. It's about enabling the business units which are competing for time to market. Okay. Now, if people want to follow up and um, go and find out where Infinidat are sitting in all of this discussion, we obviously can point them at infinidat.com. Is there anything else you'd specifically like to point them towards? I would definitely say subscribe to our YouTube channel. We have recently dramatically revolutionized everything in there and we're, we're not done. We're making all of our announcements available as technical demos and as webinars on our web on our YouTube channel. So definitely subscribe there. And if you want to reach out to me directly, I'm available at Aaron Brown on LinkedIn. And that's pretty much the only social media platform you will find me on. Okay, fantastic. Aaron, thanks very much for joining. Uh, always a pleasure to talk to you and look forward to catching up with you soon. Same here. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Hybrid Cloud Podcast from Architecting IT. For show notes and more, subscribe at hybridcloudpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Architecting IT or join our LinkedIn group by searching for Architecting IT. You can find us on all good podcatchers, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Spotify.